God's salvation plan from Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 to 6. So this morning we resume our series in the book of Genesis and uh, we won't have the Bible readings, you won't be able to follow it on the screen so if you have your Bibles we will do it the old fashioned way. Um, Something a little bit more modern is if you've got your Bibles in your smartphones, then probably have your have it open to Genesis chapter 15. If you haven't downloaded a Bible to your smartphone, I'm not going to get into that. You should have done that a long time ago. Um, and uh, have a look at Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 to 6. I encourage you to do that. So as you're travelling and, and all of that, you have the scriptures right in front of you. But there is no excuse for not having God's word or reading it each and every day and meditating upon it. God's salvation plan. Let's just uh, briefly track where we are and where we have been. God created a perfect world. Man rebels against God and sin enters with devastating consequences. God promises a deliverer and offspring of a woman. Chapter 3 verse 15 in Genesis. Man's sinfulness increases and so we read this in chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Do you still believe in the goodness of mankind? Well, despite what you might think, the evidence is contrary, quite contrary. Look all around us and even the scriptures tell us that is a very wrong assessment if you still believe that. The wickedness of the human heart is great indeed. It is internal because it is the inclination of his heart. It is constant and it's just happening all around us and it has been through time. God brings total destruction on earth except for Noah and his family. And it won't be long that even after Noah and his kids have stepped off the boat that their generation starts to defy God by making a name for themselves to build a tower. And yet God's salvation plan continues unabated. And so from relative pagan obscurity in the land of Ur, or the Chaldeans, God calls Abram to leave his country and his people and follow him on a journey to a place, to a land that God will give him and to make his name great. Man wanted to make their name great, to make a name for themselves and the only one who can do that is God. Only God can make your name great. Abram has made his way into the promised land But not soon after he goes out of the will of God to Egypt where God still protects him despite his disobedience and his lying and then brings him back into the land. Shortly after there is strife between Abram and Lot who had come out of Ur with Uncle Abe. The herdsmen start fighting 
and they get to choose. So Lot gets first choice and he chooses the land near Sodom and Gomorrah while Abram gets a second pick and he stays in Hebron, the promised land. The 14th chapter, Lot's choice seems wrong because soon after he settles and his wealth is increasing, he is captured and taken as a prisoner by four kings. In chapter 14, the Abram and his men, about 300 and something of them, they go, do a night raid and rescue Lot with his lot. Abram, on his return, is offered a, offered a very generous reward by the king of Sodom, which Abram flatly refuses for reasons of integrity. But he redirects the reward to his fighting soldiers, his men, which brings us to chapter 15. From the very outset, I'd like to say that chapter 15 is a very foundational chapter in the life of Abraham, but also us as children of God. We find ourselves here in chapter 15. It is, very, it is a very relevant message for us today in the midst of so much confusion as to who we are. The nature of our salvation, which is constantly in question. And as we aim to follow God through these dark times. Is God going to keep his promises despite our wandering hearts? That always seems to go on a tangent. We seem to know what we want, what we're doing. We seem to be following our feelings. And a lot of the times the word of God is questioned and left to one side because we have something better to do or we found a new way, a new revelation. So let us look at this passage and and see what the Lord has for us. The first thing I'd like to say is verse 1 is fear. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, after everything that has happened in the previous chapter, I have to admit that this is somewhat, it is a somewhat puzzling verse. What on earth would God, why on earth would God appear to Abram in a vision telling him not to be afraid? Obvious answer is because he was afraid. Why would Abram be afraid? He had just won a great victory over four powerful kings with nothing more than 350, 320 men. Why would he be afraid? He just received this hero's welcome and offered all his great reward. He saved his nephew Lot from slavery. Yet somehow, despite all his victories, despite all his accolades, he's fearful. Why? Because at night when he's resting, these thoughts come to him. There are four powerful, humiliated kings out there who are not going to take defeat lying down. So a counterattack is 
inevitable. That's the way it was. So word must have got around somehow back to Uncle Abe or his servants or his herdsmen that the word had got around that the kings were upset and that now Uncle Abe is shaking in his sandals. How is it that we can experience fear so soon after a great victory? It's happened before and it's going to happen, well, it's going to happen later on in, for example, in the life of Elijah. After a great victory on Mount Carmel where all those false prophets are slaughtered and that the power of God is demonstrated in this amazing way, Elijah is overcome with fear of a woman called Jezebel who is the wife of the king, this wicked woman. And he runs away scared, depressed. We are vulnerable after victory because there is this inevitable letdown that comes after success. As I've given, I've said this before and it's the statistics are true that most men after they have climbed, most people who have climbed Everest, men and women, have died on the way down, not on the way up. It's, it's, it's just something that happens to us that we are courageous in an effort, in a crisis when we want to reach somewhere and yet succumb to the little things. You see the trappings of success all around us. The big homes, the big houses, the harbour views, the big yachts, the big planes, the big buildings, the trappings of success, the people put up facades and fences to protect themselves. But just think for a minute that who is inside behind those walls? Who lives inside those homes? Because behind the big gates and the big walls and the big homes, underneath all those trappings of success, is often you will find a weak, sad, broken, aching heart that is searching for meaning that nothing can satisfy. But does God want his children, those who he calls his own, to live like this, to live in fear? It is said that fear not appears, fear not or similar phrases appear 365 times in the Bible. A daily reminder for every day of the whole year to be reminded that we are not to fear. Yes, Abram appeared powerful, invincible, yet fearful for his own security. So God comes to Abram and says to him, in the midst of his fear, I am your shield. How good is that? I am your shield. What are you scared of? I'm your protector, defender, 
security guard. You can sleep tight because, Abram, I got this, okay? Solomon, in his wiser years, said this, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. It doesn't matter how many cameras, how many security guards, how much of everything you have. It's in vain. And God's reassurance to this frightened old man is just getting started. But the Apostle Paul will pick up on this same theme to to remind us, and the Apostle Paul and, and Peter and others to Christians who were persecuted and, and very much hated in every sense by the world. What is it that you guys are afraid of? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? I am your shield. Is God for us? Absolutely. So what are you scared of? What am I scared of? So think about where Abe, Uncle Abe is at. This uh, fellow has just declined as well a most generous offer from the kings and uh, from the king of Sodom and, and with the offer of the great reward on his way back after the victory, uh, he would be set up for life, wouldn't he? A lot of money, a lot of riches, a lot of power. And he declined all of that. He said no for reasons of integrity. I don't want anybody bragging that, uh, you know, you, I don't want you bragging especially that you have made me rich and all of that. No, I can't have it. So as the electricity bill comes to Uncle Abe inside his tent and he's considering the insurance uh, bill has just gone up because he's just defeated four kings, so nobody wants to insure Uncle Abe anymore. He's getting all his bills and he's got to feed his troops and his herdsmen and cattle and all that. He's thinking, gee, I could do with a little bit of money at the moment. Maybe I I shouldn't have been so quick in saying no to that reward. Maybe his wife brought the theme up. Are you nuts? Why'd you say no? In the moment, because this is the way our mind works, right? We have second thoughts. I could have got more for this. Should have sold that. Blah, blah, blah. Goes on. God knows his heart. And, 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 and the things that are keeping him awake at night. God, God knows your heart and the things that keep you awake at night. God knows it. And so to this, to this worried man, God says, I am your great reward. Now the past few weeks we have looked at, a, at four different instances, four different passages in 1 Corinthians that speak of the rewards that God has for us as his children. How very striking to think that apart from whatever else God has already given us 
here, this side of heaven. And what is awaiting for us in glory, we have the most amazing reward already given us in God himself. We get caught up, you see, in in valuing our net worth and you can make it into Forbes 500 and 100 and blah, blah, blah. It just goes on about net worth and what what your assets are and Centrelink wants to know what's the value of your assets and all of that. How do you value someone that is something that is invaluable, someone who is invaluable that is God? All the while, you see, we we are blind to the treasures that we already have in, in, in God himself and everything he has given us. God has given us, has, has withheld nothing from us. And yet we demand more. Let me say that there is no satisfaction apart from God. And even if you're tempted to pray that for God to give you more, which some churches encourage you to do, that's being success, that'll be the only way you will find happiness. There is no satisfaction apart from God or even through God if you are restricting your blessings to the material realm. The blessing is found only in God. Don't use God for personal gain, for material gain. God is your reward for a relationship is, it, with God is the reward itself. It's, it's the maker of the universe, the heavens and the earth. He says, I'm your reward. So the first point is that God cuts through our fear I am your shield and to a man who wrestled with the fear of retaliation he said I'm your shield and as he worried about poverty and how is he going to cope in the future refusing by refusing the spoils of war God says I am your great reward. You never lose anything when you give up something to follow the Lord. In the words of Jim Elliot which I have quoted before He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Verses 2 to 3, doubt. Fear and then doubt. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, Abram must have been comforted by the words of God in that first verse. Yet there remained this this lingering doubt in his heart because God had previously promised to give him an heir, a son, to multiply his descendants as the dust of the earth sand. But he has been in the land for 10 years now. Still no son. 
Sarah wasn't getting any younger. And so out of the confusion and doubt, and doubt, not defiance, this is doubt what he's going through here. He's not, you know, showing his fist to God and all that type of stuff, not shouting at God. Abram asked God in the midst of his doubt about the promise of a son. Basically, in words to the effect of what good is success without a successor? What good is success without a successor? Can you relate at all to Abram's pain here? Every bone in your body wants to trust God's promise that he will supply all your needs according to his riches. Every bone in your body wants to believe the words of scripture. And yet there is some doubt, but Lord, I know. Look, I'm just not getting peace. I'm not getting ahead. You know, the bills are piling up. I still am struggling in so many different areas. I'm just not sure, Lord, anymore about all of this. Doubts start creeping in. Can you feel his pain? Surely, I did did hear God right, that God's word was my own son, that he wasn't going to be an adopted son like my servant Eliezer, good servant that he is, but he's not from my own flesh and blood. And yes, Abram doesn't defy God in anger or frustration. In in the midst of his doubt, this is a good lesson for us. In the midst of his doubt, he places himself his doubt, his prayers, he, he presents them before the Lord, but the sovereign, not just the Lord, but the sovereign Lord. He says, O Lord God, And the word there is Adonai. You've heard that word before, Adonai, which means Master, Yahweh, Sovereign Lord. Abram is casting his cares upon God because he knows that God cares for him. The Sovereign Lord is the one who controls everything. That all our lives are in his hands. It is because of this that the Apostle Peter can say, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. Not just some of your anxieties, but all of your anxieties because he cares for you. Yes, God sometimes seems to take a a long time to fulfil his promises and we can get discouraged because we would like to apply God's promises in the immediate. We want to get things done straight away. And when things aren't happening or they appear not to be happening and God, for us, he seems to be having a siesta or a sleep or maybe even forgotten. We sort of say, well, what's going on, Lord? And you can get discouraged. And then you start going on a tangent or seek other lesser alternatives. But you know what? It is precisely in these times that we need to trust in God's promises. 
He's going to get it done. He's going to get it done. Verses 4 to 5, promise reaffirmed. Verses 4 to 5, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In the midst of his fear, in the midst of his doubts, the sovereign Lord, Yahweh Adonai, encourages him by reaffirming his promise. He repeats the original promise from chapter 12 and chapter 13, but now there's a slight twist. Before, his descendants were to be as numerous as the sand. Now he reconfirms it by stating that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And just to make sure that Abe understands it, God's word in the original Hebrew is that his own son, his own flesh and blood, it will not be the adopted one, Eliezer, but will be in the original language. This is the literal language and please kids, close your ears. From his lower loin. That's what the literal language means. I'm sure that Abe understood exactly what God meant because God just had to re-emphasise his point to make sure that he understood. Let's leave it at that. Sometimes God has to use strong language just to make sure that we actually get the picture of what he's trying to say to us. What is it that you don't understand of what I've said to you? And this is, apart from the prophets and everything else that would come, uh, this is the first time that we hear that the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. We're going to hear that word repeated many times later on and, and how wonderful it is. Now, as humans, we struggle with scale, don't we? But God knows just how much we can see and appreciate in our limited humanness. So God takes him outside and I take it that God's word came to Abram at night. And so there is a lesson here for Abram. Show and tell, or tell and show. Can you count them, Abram? Let's go outside. See all those stars? Can you count them? Well, Abram, can you count more than 144,000? Yes, definitely more than 144,000. They say that with the naked eye on a perfect night, we might be able to see 5,000 stars. Uh, Obviously, that's cut down to half because the earth is covering the other half. Get my drift, okay? So, two and a half thousand this side and as the earth, anyway. Talking about scale, they tell us that there are about 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe. 10 billion galaxies. The number of stars within each galaxy varies. We are simply in one of those galaxies called the Milky Way. Now our own galaxy has about 100 billion stars, 
So let's say that on average all the other galaxies have 100 billion stars, give or take a few billion. If you multiply that by the 10 billion galaxies, there are 1 billion trillion stars in the observable universe. What we were saying about scale? And Abram is there looking at all of this and he can only see, look, Lord, I only got up to two and a half thousand stars. I've given up. No, Abram, there's a lot more than two and a half thousand. There's a lot more. Can you count them, Abram? Yeah, right. Is that how you or I will respond? Surely not. Surely not. How many children of Abram have come and gone into glory since the time of Uncle Abe? Is it hard to believe? Is it hard to believe? Well, Abram believed. That's what he tells us in verse 6. Abram believed. This is righteousness declared. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Without exaggeration, let me say that this is perhaps the most important verse in the Old Testament and certainly one of the most important verses in the whole of Scripture. It comes very close. This is the first verse in the whole Bible that explicitly speaks of faith, righteousness, justification. The Apostle Paul would expound on this verse in in Romans 4 and then Galatians chapter 3 to to argue that we are, are saved by faith apart from any works. Now, it's important to to say that this is not the first time that Abram believed in the Lord. Abram had indeed believed and trusted and accepted the word of the Lord for over a decade since he first heard of the Lord, the word of the Lord from the land of Ur that he left. But this whole issue of of inheritance and and how the heirs and, and the promise of God and all that just he didn't quite fully understand. And so here his faith is is focused on the the promise of a son through whom blessing will come to the whole world. It wasn't just restricted to his family, but the whole of the world will be blessed through him. It is difficult for us from this point of view, this vantage point, to, to understand how complete Abram's understanding of this whole process would have been how much did he actually understand of the promise the promise one the promise heir not heirs but as in singular the particular heir who would come this is how Jesus explained it this is what Jesus declared in John chapter 8 verse 56 John 8:56 Jesus said he said your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. Was this 
and I thought about this verse and I said, well, is this a declaration that Jesus made when Abram was in flesh and blood or is this a declaration of something that happened in the heavens when Abram was promoted after he died? We know that Moses, for example, Elijah appeared to, to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, what you see here is just one aspect of, of the whole of, of what is happening in the heavenly realms. Your father Abram rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad because God's rescue plan, God's salvation plan was coming to fruition. It was coming together. And Abraham rejoiced. He was privileged. He could see, thank you Lord because you are doing this. It's coming together. And you use me, you use my family, you use my descendants and salvation has indeed. It is coming to the world. That's why he rejoiced. No one could fulfill this unless it was the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Let's talk a little bit about this statement. Firstly, his faith is personal. His faith is personal. This is the first occurrence of the word believe in the scriptures. Believe in the Lord. When a man has faith, he can't just believe in anything. They say, have faith, brother. All you need is faith. Well, faith in what? What exactly? Faith in our own abilities? Faith in a process? What is it? No. There has to be an object of faith. More importantly, a person. He also, he believed the thing that the Lord has said. He assented to it. He trusted what the Lord said. There is no legal work, there is no requirement that Abram has to do before he is justified. He simply shown the stars and the text reads that he believed the thing that the Lord had shown him. After he saw the stars, he believed the word of the Lord. Lord, I trust you. Lord, I believe you. He wasn't to run out and kill some, some bulls and, and Goats, in order to be saved or to confirm the work of his salvation, all the religions of the world, all the human religions of the world, are all about what we need to do in order to be saved. It's called works. Well, the Christian faith is about what has been done. All the others are about do. For us, it's about what's been done for us. And if you want to get technical about it, if there's one thing you need to do, if you really want to do something, is believe. Believe. If believing is indeed a doing thing. So his faith is personal. The other thing that we, we can see as well is that 
It says here that his faith is, is credited. It is credited to him as righteousness. When something is, is credited, it means that it goes into your account. It means that has, if you go to your bank account, you discover this humongous deposit and you say, well, that's, how did that get there? And a few people have found that and they, they went on their merry way and spent it all and then got into a whole heap of trouble. But salvation here is credited to our account wholly a part of anything we have done or has been reckoned, has been credited to us. We didn't earn it. It is totally unmerited, has been credited. That means, what does it mean in the context of salvation? That means that it is the work of Christ that has been declared perfect because Christ is perfect, sinless, perfect. And so the work of Christ has been credited to you as if you have never sinned. Well, that's not right, is it? I'm a rotten sinner. But no, through Christ, when God sees you through Christ, he sees you as perfect. Perfect. And then declared righteous, says here, that he was credited to him as righteousness. That is to be found right before God. That is a big word that we see in the scriptures and evangelical Christianity is very strong on this. I say evangelicals because the Catholics are still to understand the whole thing about righteousness. It's still about hung up on works and what we need to do and the Hail Marys and this and that. Now what? It's been done. It's been done. You are righteous before God. and Because you are righteous before God, you are now called to walk in faith. Because the righteous will live by faith. If you have been declared righteous, now start living a righteous life. Because it is not a process. This salvation is not a process. Justification, righteousness is a status. It's a declaration from God. I declare you righteous. It says here that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. He was declared as righteous before God. It was all God. All him. Now to you here this morning who have yet to indeed surrender, indeed surrender to the maker of heaven and earth, the author of our salvation and recognise him as your Lord and Saviour, I plead with you to surrender to him and declare him as your Lord. There is nothing more that God can do, nothing more that God can give than what he has given to you in his son Jesus Christ. He has done it already. But in you believing, you mean that's all I have to do? Yes. 
To be declared righteous? Yes. You need to believe. And to you who are a believer and perhaps you find this whole aspect of trusting in the Lord just a little bit too simple after all these years of walking in the faith, walking in faith and walking in the Christian life and you say, yeah, I've tried that. I trusted in the Lord. I went to this conference and they told me all these things I needed to do in order to trust the Lord. It's not that complicated, guys. You don't need to, I don't even need to put the different bullet points about how to trust God and all of this. It's just trust the Lord. When you're talking to a brother or sister who's struggling and you're trying to encourage them and, and you say to them, you need to trust the Lord, don't be, it sounds too simple, doesn't it? Surely it can't be that simple. And yet the phrase, trust the Lord, appears right throughout the Scriptures. If it was good for God, if it was good for the, for the, for the Christians, if it was good for, for the believers of all the ages, why can't we use it? Oh, because some psychologists, psychiatrists say it was just a, just a phrase, just a useless declaration, just to cheat, trust the Lord. Is really? You're going to trust in the psychiatrists and psychologists and everybody else who, yes, they have their place, but ultimately at the foundation level of all that we do, we have to trust God. Trust in the Lord. It isn't a cheap praise. It is, in fact, one of the most wonderful declarations in Scripture. Trust in the Lord. I pray that as we come to the Lord and each and every day we seek to live our life in faith, that this trust will continue to grow, that heaven and all the rewards are awaiting us. We've already had our expectations totally fulfilled because this is what we've been waiting for all our lives. At the same time, we glory in the fact that no condemnation now we dread. We're going to sing that hymn. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God sees us as perfect, as righteous, as justified through the Son, in the Son, and his perfect gift. Amen.